The year is 850 AD. You're in Ethokos, past the western reaches of the Khazar Khaganate and amidst the fertile banks of the scenic Dniester, Prut, and Sirat rivers. And you're having a good time. You're with your six best friends, five other Madyar chieftains, and the High Prince Almosh, one of the coolest guys you've ever met. Almosh, man, what a dude. Worldly, smart, but down-to-earth as can be. Cool, poised, always there for you. Almosh is a guy who doesn't get anything without getting six more for the crew. You're all kicking back, cracking some jokes, passing around a cauldron of wine, clowning on each other a bit. The vibes are good. One of your buddies, it could have been Totohome, but to be honest, you're a little tipsy and don't remember, says, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if all our kids knew each other and they all became best friends too? <laughs> they all just chilled like this. And then, like, their kids knew each other and then they became best friends. <laughs> I'm just messing around. I just love you guys so much. The High Prince Almosh's eyes light up. Wait, wait, I have an idea. Everyone stay here, he says, and bolts off into the other room. Somehow, that guy could rush off in a hurry, practically tripping over himself with excitement and still look cool. After a couple minutes of waiting, Almosh comes back in, his arms completely full, carrying a sword, a battle axe, and some other random weapons. What on earth? That guy was always thinking of the craziest pranks and hijinks, but this was new. He drops everything, but the sword, with a loud clang, points at Elod, who's mid-sip, and says, Okay, give me the wine. Elod, that lovable clown of the friend group, takes one last huge gulp before passing it over. Almosh says, So check this out, and he cuts a deep slash across his left palm. I think we should swear an oath that we'll be friends forever. Not only that, but that our kids will all be friends too, and we'll all share whatever wealth we get. A few droplets of his blood splash into the cauldron. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really lucky to know guys like you. Everything we've done this summer, everywhere we've traveled, you guys are the best friends I could ever ask for. To be honest, if you hadn't been drinking, you might have never agreed to it. Kinda weird. But this was the best summer of your life, and this handful of pals got you out of a really dark place. You're so close to them, you even check the group chat first thing in the morning. Fuck it. One by one, each of the boys drops a little blood into the vessel. Then Almosh gives it a good stir, first with the sword, then the arrows, the axe, and the javelin. As you pass the cup between you, one of your buddies leads you through the oath. Firstly, as long as our descendants shall live, their leader shall always be from the lineage of Almosh. Secondly, all wealth we acquire shall be divided between us. Third, we who have chosen Almosh by our own will, as well as our descendants, will always be included in our leader's council and will bear our country's offices. A minute-long interruptions, the guys break down in laughter at Elod for how disgustingly loud his slurp was before returning to the oath.
Fourthly, if one of us or our descendants should ever be disloyal to our leader, then he should have his blood spilt just as our blood is being spilt for Chieftain Almosh today. And fifthly, if a descendant of Almosh or the other leaders would violate the terms of this agreement, he should forever be cursed. And with that, the oath is finished. <laughs> All right, cool. Now does anybody have some weed, says Elod. You guys party until the sun comes up. You may not know it, but this moment, right now, this is it. Life will never be this good again. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Tour and Explorer Podcast, a show about Hungary and the centuries-old question of who are the Hungarians? Hosted by me, Tour and Explorer, and brought to you by producer Boss Moss. What you just heard is a retelling of what is believed to be the creation of the first constitution of Hungary, but it may have made a few embellishments. But I bring that to you to underscore a legend and possibly the historical truth attributed to the seven Hungarian tribes just before their conquest of the Pannonian Basin. This is the first part of a two-part series I'm starting off with, looking into the oldest existing history of the Hungarians and using that as like a springboard into the foundational origin myths that the earliest Hungarians in the Pannonian Basin established to explain who they were. In this first episode, we'll track three fantastical origin stories presented in this controversial document, and in the next episode, we'll dive into some of the modern history of that nation-creating, blood-drinking Hungarian ritual. This blood oath, or something like it, or maybe even the idea of it, is both foundational to the Hungarian identity and historiography, as well as shrouded in mystery, and it dates back to the oldest existing document detailing the history of the Hungarians. This document is called the Gesta Hungarorum, Latin for the Deeds of the Hungarians, and it's a manuscript written between 1200 and 1230, about 300 years after the Hungarians arrived in Europe by the notary of King Balin. That notary's name? Well, we don't know. He refers to himself as P. Dictus Magister, so his name likely starts with a P. Some historians have tried to track him down. There may have been a canon named Peter in Estergom, uh, Peter serving as the Bishop of Gyor, and a Peter serving as Provost of Buda, but the P may have also stood for Predictus, or aforementioned, referring to a now-missing title page. But Hungarians have historically had a different, much more common name for this pivotal figure in Hungarian history, Anonymous. Statues of Anonymous make him look like he's from a video game, usually as a sort of faceless, cloaked ring wraith slouched back into a chair with a pen in his hand. You can find these types of statues across Hungary, and he's always depicted the same way, like a dark mage contemplating the distant history of the Magyars. 
According to Martin Radi's introduction of the Gesta Hungarum, the manuscript is written in Latin and in the style of the French school of Paris or Orleans. Anonymous certainly has some knowledge of Hungarian, which he uses to explain the etymology of places in the kingdom, but he makes some grammatical mistakes that indicate it likely wasn't his native language. He may have had some familiarity with Turkic languages as well, and was possibly the first European to call the Black Sea the Black Sea. The Gesta Hungarum, as important a document as it is, also presents a lot of problems for historians and may be more wrought with geopolitical controversy than any other medieval European text. Because the Deeds of the Hungarians is indeed a Gesta, a heroic and action-filled recounting of deeds, a common genre in medieval literature meant to entertain as opposed to a scholarly chronicle of history. The Gesta focuses on the conquests of the Hungarians between the 9th and 10th centuries as they were raiding Europe and consolidating their control over the Pannonian Basin, the geographical name for where Hungary is today. To do this, Anonymous pulls from folk songs and ballads, and it's generally agreed by historians that he used existing place names to assume the opponents of the incoming Magyars, basically working backwards off a lot of assumptions. An interesting complication that's arisen out of these assumptions is that many of these kingdoms and peoples are not referred to in any other sources. Some of them may have been real, but others were likely invented by Anonymous to highlight the adventure and might of the Hungarian conquerors. The most controversial of these figures is the alleged ruler of the Vlachs of Transylvania, Jello. Jello, in the following thousand years, was uplifted as a genuine historical Romanian figure that confirmed Romanian autochthony in Transylvania, and you can find monuments to Jello in Romania to this day, even though his only evidence is in this document. Romanian debates about their own ethnic origins are every bit as fascinating as the Hungarian parallels, and I'd like at some point to use this podcast to talk to Romanian scholars as well about Daco-Romanian continuity and the formation of the Romanian identity and language. But regardless of the extent of pre-conquest Romanian populations in Transylvania, Jello, as a historical precedent, has very much been the subject of debate, at least at this point in the scholarship. Knowing that, I find it extremely funny that the Romanian government bought a full-page English-language advertisement for the Gesta Hungarum in 1987 in The Times as part of a soft power push to internationally affirm the validity of Romanian territorial claims over Transylvania. Of course, what's ironic about this is this pivotal document of Hungarian history for years embraced by Hungarian nationalists has become a tool used against them to counteract Hungarian claims and presence in Transylvania, which was on and off territory of the Kingdom of Hungary and contains a Hungarian-speaking population named the Sikes since some of the earliest centuries of a Hungarian presence in the region, but it became part of Romania post-World War I. If you're a Romanian or Hungarian, you know that there's this never-ending debate over who was there first in Transylvania that involves competing citations of ancient texts. Take a shot if this reminds you of like a dozen other arguments in Central and Eastern Europe. But if you're not, 
just like know that the national identity of both Hungary and Romania are modern constructs that people a thousand plus years ago would have had no comprehension of, just like every national identity. And regardless of people migrations or ancient records, both Romanians and Hungarians have a shared history in the region and a lot more common than they don't. But anyway, what does the Gesta Hungarum actually say? Well, the first sections of the book describe a magical vision, that ancient blood oath, and a kind of curse, which is often considered the first recorded constitution of Hungary and a very early rites enshrining oral document in European history, at least in concept. There's been interesting scholarship as to where Anonymous was inspired to write about the blood oath and if it actually happened. But in this episode, I want to describe the way the Gesta Hungarum tries to explain who the hell the Magyars actually are. In its opening statements, it lays the foundation for three of the most enduring origin myths about the Hungarians, that they are descended from the Scythians, that they are descended from Attila's Huns, and that they are descended from the apocalyptic biblical civilizations of Gog and Magog. It's not surprising the Hungarians, and basically all steppe peoples, were believed to be related to the Scythians. I mentioned them a little in my first episode, but the Scythians were equestrian nomads who were extremely powerful on the steppe throughout antiquity. While they spoke an Eastern Iranian language, their culture shared many similarities with Turkic, Finno-Ugric, Mongolic, and other steppe people, though we're talking about a multi-continental landmass and nearly 3,000 years of history, so there are a lot of differences and diversity as well. I would kind of say that Scythians and these other groups can be compared in the same way that like Greeks and Romans can. Not at all the same people, language, or really religion, but if you're not all that familiar with the region or history and you squint, you can see it. And what's more, so many steppe peoples across different language groups, lifestyles, and political structures interacted with one another for centuries, sometimes warring, sometimes collaborating, supercharging cross-cultural transfer across the Eurasian steppe highway. This region has often been an extraordinarily dynamic place. Oftentimes, broad confederations would form between diverse linguistic, religious, or cultural groups when they needed to migrate outside of the steppe or across it. This was the case with the famous Huns, the Mongols, the Avars, the Khazars, and even the Hungarians. Scythians and the people groups descended from them, who had a kingdom that controlled a vast, mostly western portion of Eurasia for centuries, developed sophisticated metalworking techniques and trade networks. Their art was really remarkable as well. Just Google Siberian Ice Maiden for an incredibly well-preserved two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old mummy of a Scythian woman. What we know about their rich art, exotic imports, and impressive systems of governance should also underscore that our image of nomadic steppe peoples in general, while ferocious when they were at war with settled peoples, weren't as primitive or bloodthirsty as tropes in media like Mulan, Game of Thrones, Night at the Museum, whatever else would have you believe. At least not like exceptionally for the time, all the time. 
The Scythian kingdom died out around the 3rd century BC, but they were replaced by the related Sarmatian people until the 4th century AD, when Sarmatian dominance was then broken by the Germanic Goths, leading to scattered remnants, including the Alans, throughout the region. I mentioned in the last episode, too, that these Scythians spoke an Indo-European language, specifically an East Iranian language, and in fact, Alan is related to the term Aryan, meaning that these people have inspired a lot of attention and theories from a certain sector of international politics. I should also note that the end of the Scythian kingdom was 1,200 years before Hungarians' arrival in Europe and 1,500 years before Anonymous wrote the Gesta Hungarum. In other words, we, right now, listening to this podcast, are closer to the Hungarians' arrival in Europe than the arriving Hungarians were to the Scythian Empire. But a writer like Anonymous, an educated magister in 1230 or so, would have had a very colorful understanding of the Scythian people, much more so than even more recent cultures. There's a reason that the Scythians were so ever-present as well in the imagination of medieval writers and why their history resonates with so many people interested in the Eurasian steppe today, other than the long, vast, and early rule that they commanded. I think it's undeniable that part of their fame is really simply because they happen to live alongside the ancient Greeks who wrote about them. And in doing so, the Scythians, or at least the Greek description of the Scythians, became foundational to any Europeans' understanding of all steppe cultures. Because of this, there's a lot that we get wrong about steppe cultures, too. Anonymous spends the first part of his book writing about how the seven leading Hungarians, or Hetmagyar, came down from Scythian land, what the Scythian land was like, and how the high prince Duke Almush was born. Anonymous says of Scythia, Scythia is then a very great land called Dentumoger over to the east, the end of which reaches westwards to the Black Sea, the Nigrum Pontum. On the far side, it has a river with great marshes called the Don, where sables can be found in such extraordinary abundance that not only nobles and innobles dress in them, but also with which even ox herds, swine herds, and shepherds adorn their raiment in the land. Gold and silver abound there, and in the rivers of this land precious are stones and gems. The Scythians are indeed an ancient people of whom historians writing of the deeds of the Romans said as follows, that the Scythian people was most wise and gentle. They did not work the soil nor barely knew any sin among them. And they did not have homes built by craft, but rather tents made of felt. They ate meat and fish and milk and honey, and they had much spice. And their clothes were of the pelts of sables and other wild beasts. They had gold, silver, and gems as common as stones, which they found in the rivers of the land. They desired no one else's goods, for they were all rich, having many animals and sufficient victuals. And there were no adulterers, for every man kept only to his wife. 
And later, this people, worn out in war, became, as some historians tell, so cruel they ate in wrath human flesh and drank the blood of humans. Anonymous writes a lot about the Scythians' wars against Darius, Cyrus, and Alexander the Great, the Great and the Great, and he talks up their military prowess. The Scythian people were never subjugated by any emperor, for the Scythians made Darius, king of the Persians, flee with the greatest ignominy, and Darius lost there 80,000 men and so fled in great fear of Persia. Next, the Scythians slew Cyrus, king of Persia, with 330,000 men. Next, the Scythians put to base flight even Alexander the Great himself, the son of King Philip and Queen Olympias, who had conquered many kingdoms in war. And the Scythian race was so hardy so as to endure all toil, and the Scythians were big in body and bold in war, and they had nothing in the world that they feared to lose for an injury done to them. When the Scythians had a victory, they wished nothing of booty, as do their posterity today, but sought only praise for it. And except for Darius, Cyrus, and Alexander, no people in the world dared to enter their land. The aforesaid Scythian people were indeed hardy in combat, and on speedy mounts with helmeted heads, they were better with bows and arrows than all the other nations of the world, and you will know this to be so from their offspring. The Scythian land, as much as it is distant from the tropics, is as healthy for the generating of families, and although spacious enough, it was still insufficient to sustain or keep the host of peoples begotten there. On this account, the seven leading persons who were called the Hetumoger, or seven chieftains of the Hungarians, or Hetmajar, not tolerating the pressures of space, thought very greatly of a solution. Then these seven leading persons, having taken counsel together, decided that they should forsake the soil of their birth and take for themselves such lands as they could inhabit. So with this, Anonymous is directly tracing the Hungarians as coming straight from Scythian civilization, which is not really historical. The peoples that Anonymous was trying to describe would have been far too distant from one another chronologically to ever interact like specifically. Although there were people groups who were descended from the Scythians or spoke language that were branched off from the Scythians or thought of themselves as continuators of the Scythian Empire that would have had relationships with the Magyars. In fact, there are some cultures who can be thought of as descended from, or at least related to, the Scythians that are even around today. I'll tell you about two, in fact, and one is actually in Hungary. So the Ossetians are an ethnic group in the Caucasus Mountains, beyond the Black Sea. About half of Ossetia is in Russia, half is in Georgia, and the issue of South Ossetian separatism from the country of Georgia is a high-tension political issue. It's probably where you've heard about Ossetia if you've heard about it. The Ossetians still speak an Eastern Iranian language that is related to that of the Scythians, but like 
thousands of years away, and parts of their folklore are based on Scythian mythology, or at least you can find pieces that are shared. People often like to claim lineage from the Scythians, but the group with the best claim is probably them. The second group, while no longer speaking their original language, is actually a subculture of Hungarians regionally, but they arrived in Hungary long after the Hungarians did, funny enough. The Hungarians settled in the Pannonian Basin in the late 9th century, and as they assimilated into Christian European culture, they waged wars against the still nomadic people whose lifestyles resembled what theirs once were. As the Mongols pressed westwards, actually just a few decades after Anonymous was writing this text, many of these nomadic peoples tried to at first invade Hungary, and it's a historical anomaly that the Hungarians defended their kingdom and didn't get overtaken by another nomadic group just as they had done in prior generations. After failing to invade, some of these people sought refuge in Hungary. One group are the Cumans, who are a Turkic group, and after some struggles between the population and intrigue involving a conspiracy of the nobility against them, the king granted two territories in Hungary to these people, Greater Cumania and Lesser Cumania. But another group who were granted settlement in Hungary around the same time as they fled the Mongol invasions were the Yas people, and yes, that's like, Yas. These people spoke an Eastern Iranian language, and they would have been more or less descended from the Scythian culture. Well, descended from the Alans, descended from the Sarmatians, descended from the Scythians. It's weird talking about descent in these contexts. I've been to Yashag in Hungary, and I think it's gorgeous and kind of underrated. The people there are pretty proud of their Yasik ancestry, even still, though they have definitely assimilated into the broader Hungarian culture. I bring this up because even though Anonymous is basically reaching when he says the seven Hungarian tribes came directly from the Scythians in a sort of backwards way, he really was right. Some Scythians actually did wind up becoming Hungarian. You should also note, despite the degrees of distance between the conquering Magyars and the classical Scythian civilization, a recent genetic study from 2022 published in Current Biology indicates that there would have been some admixture that the early Hungarian conquerors shared with the Sarmatians, that final Scythian offshoot that overtook the Scythians themselves. Just like in basically every region and every part of history, the Eurasian steppe did not keep people in containers, and there was a lot of intermixing. Finally, another link between the Hungarians and the Scythians are that many of the Hungarian languages' words have been determined by linguists to come from Iranian languages, likely incorporated over thousands of years. So while those may have not directly come from Scythian, the speakers of languages descended from Scythian had plenty of interactions, obviously, with early Hungarians. Some of these words also include aran for gold, kard for sword, kinch for treasure, var for castle, tees for ten, and tei for milk. It was not that surprising, after all. When one civilization dies and gets assimilated into another, it doesn't go away forever. And in the Eurasian steppe, these identities are so fluid. So I don't want to shit on Anonymous too much for saying the Hungarians were descendants of the Scythian Empire, but 
it really didn't happen the way that he described it. So there's a ton that I'm leaving out about the Scythians and a ton more that I could inject into that really, really top line overview. But you're going to want to remember the Scythians if you want to navigate these many origin myths of the Hungarian people. There's a lot more to talk about in future episodes when discussing the Hungarians' relationship to Scythians and the mysterious and complex culture of the steppe that the Magyars emerged at least mysterious to certain people throughout certain time periods. I mentioned that Anonymous introduces three foundational myths that are pretty head-spinning, and the Scythians are honestly the tamest and most believable out of all of them. Anonymous also claims, intertwined with his description of Scythia, that the Hungarians are descended from Attila the Hun, and that all Scythian-adjacent peoples are, in fact, descended from the mythological, apocalyptic, biblical characters of Gog and Magog. Let's focus on Attila for now. Anonymous writes, The first king of Scythia was Magog, son of Japhet, and this people were called after him Mogar, from whose royal line the most renowned and mighty King Attila descended, who in the 451st year of our Lord's birth, coming down from Scythia, entered Pannonia with a mighty force, and putting the Romans to flight, took the realm and made a royal residence for himself beside the Danube above the hot springs, and he ordered all the old buildings that he found there to be restored, and he built them in a circular and very strong wall that in the Hungarian language is now called Budavar, and by the Germans Etzelberg. Anonymous is deliberately trying to tie the Hungarian monarchy's lineage to Attila the Hun, even though the Hungarians arrived in Pannonia many years afterward. To do this, he establishes the idea that the Hungarians and the Huns are from the same royal Scythian line, but are basically cousins who hear of Attila's exploits and replicate them 400 years later. He also has to affirm that Buda, or Aquincum, which was previously a Roman settlement, became later the city of Attila, and this has inspired a lot of fascinating conspiracy theories, including doubts uh, that that was the actual location of the city to begin with. He writes that Scythian land was so full on account of the host of the people born there that it was insufficient to sustain or keep the Hungarians, as we said above. On account of this, the seven leading persons, finding the physical constraints unendurable, having taken counsel among themselves to quit the soil of their birth, did not cease seeking in battle and war to occupy lands that they might live in. Then they chose to seek for themselves the land of Pannonia that they had heard from rumor had been the land of King Attila, from whose line Duke Almosh, father of Arpad, descended. 
Throughout the Gesta Hungarorum, Attila is almost exclusively mentioned by Anonymous as a justification for the Hungarian monarchy's mythical lineage. Descended from the line of King Attila, our ancestor King Attila, by right of his forebear King Attila, or Anonymous also mentions Attila in reference to the lands of Pannonia itself, the lands of King Attila, the city of King Attila, the most powerful King Attila had the land which lies between the Danube and the Tisza. The question of Attila's relationship to the Hungarians is a pretty interesting one. It's undeniable that there's a lot of affinity for Attila the Hun in Hungary today. It's about the 10th most common male name in the country. And basically every Hungarian you meet knows at least a couple Attilas. I sure do. But in the most literal sense, Attila did not have a relationship to the Hungarians and had occupied the lands that are now Hungary nearly 400 years prior. The language that the Huns of Attila spoke is another contentious question. You're going to groan how often I make this point, but a big part of that is that the Huns, like all nomadic steppe civilizations, especially when they formed confederations to wage war on the settled peoples around them, were not at all homogenous. I'm going to give you what I believe, based on at least the least common denominator consensus of historians, but the anthropology of the Huns is a pretty dynamic question that changes all the time. The Huns, whose golden age under Attila was around 430 AD, had an elite who were ethnically separate and likely spoke a different language from the rest of the Huns. This was an extremely common social order among steppe civilizations. Records exist from their Roman contemporaries who indicate that many of the lower status Huns spoke a Germanic language, but there's also record of a separate Hunnic language as well. There's a lot to say about interesting personal details from Attila and his brother Bleda, but Attila had a jester named Zedekon the Moor. He was a dwarf from North Africa, originally purchased by his brother. And apparently, Zedekon could make the entire Hunnic court laugh by jumbling together Hunnic, German, and Latin. We can assess that other people groups who would have constituted the Huns would have also included remnants of the Scythian to Sarmatian East Iranian culture called the Alans. There's also reason to believe some of the Huns included Turkic speakers, and there are theories that the Hunnic elite may have spoken a Turkic language, but we don't know because only three words from Hunnic exist today, and the guess is that they're actually probably Slavic loanwords, indicating there were some Slavs among the Huns as well. So the best guess as to who the Huns were is probably that they were part Germanic, part East Iranian, part Turkic, part Slavic, part a lot of other people. And it's possible that Attila was not a birth name, but rather a title, maybe coming from the Gothic word for father, or maybe little father, or maybe it was a Turkic word meaning horseman or something like that. But all of this linguistic forensics aside, a really interesting aspect of their culture that we are only gradually learning more about is the widespread practice of artificial cranial deformation, where a baby's skull would be bound or otherwise constrained to elongate the head, a practice the Huns likely picked up from other nomads of East Asia and potentially something that they did also share with the ancient Scythians. 
Even people groups who weren't related to the Huns or part of their confederation took inspiration from their conquest and assaults of Rome and adopted this practice. Tilly and the Huns feature pretty prominently in Norse sagas, and you can find examples of unrelated peoples across Europe adopting the practice of cranial deformation for some time, possibly to replicate the Hunnic practice. You could do your own podcast series investigating the history of the Huns themselves, but there's at least one last point that I want to make about them in this episode. When the term Huns comes to mind, if you're in America, you probably think of one of two different groups depicted, usually in media, as savage and cruel by the settled peoples they were at war with. One are the Huns of King Attila, but another, thanks to in part some translation liberties that Disney took when they made the movie Mulan in the late 90s, are the Huns for whom the Great Wall of China was in part constructed to keep at bay. This was a confederation of nomadic steppe people who waged a devastating war on the Han dynasty of China between the 2nd century BC and the 1st century AD, so between four and five centuries prior even to the Huns' invasion of Rome. This confederation is known as the Xiongnu, which potentially comes from the Chinese word for fierce slave, but was also maybe a change in pronunciation from something more like Hongnu. And some scholars historically had suggested a relationship between the Xiongnu and the Huns, going all the way back to a Jesuit French orientalist in the 18th century. Today, there are many conflicting hypotheses about the relationship between the Xiongnu and the Huns, but one theory that I find pretty compelling is one that's written about based on a number of different key evidentiary pieces by Australian historian Hyun Jin Kim, that it's not impossible that there was a continuity between the two civilizations, but that that continuity would have been kind of indirect. It's based on both the shared designs between the Asian and Roman Huns cauldrons, as well as several records from the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD from a Sogdian merchant and a Buddhist monk, indicating that the Xiongnu called themselves something very similar to Huns. Theory says that the Huns of the West may have been a separate people linguistically and even genetically, or mostly genetically, from the Xiongnu of the East. However, those Western Huns may have been aware of the Eastern ones and considered them part of a historical civilizational continuity, basically like the inheritors of the Xiongnu Empire, even though their backgrounds were different. The best comparison that I can think of is the difference between the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, or how the word Caesar gave us Kaiser and Tsar. These are definitely different civilizations with different structures, languages, lineage of monarchs, and territory, separated by hundreds of years. But the Holy Roman Empire appropriated the name and memory of the Roman Empire to consolidate and legitimize its imperial identity. Further complicating this relationship is how much the Huns, or even the Xiongnu, were dubbed as the same by other peoples observing and writing about them. And this isn't the only instance of Central Asian nomads who fought in wars against settled peoples being considered the Huns, even if they weren't directly part of the Hun or Xiongnu state. There were also the waves of people called the Hunas in Central Asia who entered the Indian subcontinent during the 5th and 6th centuries. 
These waves of nomads were called the Hunas by the Indian and Sassanid peoples and also recorded by Roman sources as the White Huns in a direct comparison to the Huns of Attila who migrated westward. How related they were to either of the Xiongnu or the Huns of Attila is just as unknown as a lot of the other stuff that I just listed out for you. But it's yet another example of a long list of diverse multicultural steppe peoples being described either internally or externally as Huns or some variation of that word. So sometimes I make TikToks about Hungarian history, and I wind up seeing a lot of these debates in the comments about Hungarians' relationship with the Huns. And point blank, like, the Hungarians are not descended from the Huns in most of the ways that you would think about that word. The Huns of Attila invaded Europe in the 4th century, dissipated after his death, were replaced by another nomadic group called the Avars, who dissipated very shortly afterward, and then the Hungarians arrived in the late 9th century, nearly half a millennium later. The common knowledge is that Hungarians are sort of related to the Huns. After all, they used to be Asian nomads. They occupy about the same territory. They name their sons Attila. The informed opinion is no, that's ridiculous. The Huns and the Hungarians are separated by centuries. They didn't speak the same language. They're not part of the same lineage. They're almost certainly not related to one another. And it's unlikely that those Hungarians thought of themselves as the Huns at the time they were doing their Hun-like stuff. But I posit a third opinion. One that, given the many unknowns about ancient steppe civilizations and the subjectivity like civilizational continuity, it's more a way of seeing things. Picture the midwit bell curve meme, where the really smart guy and the really dumb guy make the same argument using different rationale. The continuity of the Xiongnu's, the Huns, and the Hunas was never really direct and was almost always one culture appropriating the legacy of another. These people may have likely either thought of themselves as similar enough to previous iterations of Hunnic empires or been thought of as Huns by the people they interacted with. And that's enough to, in a cultural sense, think of themselves as being part of the same tradition, even an arbitrary one or inorganic one, a social construct, if you will. So in the same way that these Huns may have sort of been the Xiongnu, but not really, isn't it then worth entertaining that the Hungarians were also kind of filling that Hunnic space? After all, we just read one of the earliest records of Hungarians creating a false, arbitrary, but still imagined and believed line of continuity between Hungarians and the Huns of Attila. Even if the High Prince Almost was certainly not descended from Attila, this lineage was used to justify and legitimize the Hungarian kingdom in what I would argue is a similar way that the Holy Roman Empire claiming arbitrarily its lineage from the Roman Empire. Hell, Sultan Mehmed II of the Ottoman Empire labeled himself the Caesar of Rome because this remains such a legitimizing force in the Mediterranean world. Not only did Hungarians in Anonymous's time claim descent from the Huns of Attila, they were seen as such by nearby people that they encountered and fought wars with. The word for Hungarians in their own language is Magyar. It's changed a lot over the years, and you'll see Anonymous sometimes writing Moger. But as I explained previously, Hungarian is an exonym that is actually a combination of different groups the Magyars were mistaken for, like the word Hungarian itself. 
Byzantine sources called them the On-Ogurs, believing them to be the Turkic peoples who joined the Bulgarian tribal confederacy, which Hungarians may or may not have belonged to. The association with the Huns is probably why there was an H added to this, with Theophylactus Simocata referring to them as explicitly descendants of the Hun hordes. Anglo-Saxons also called them members of the Hun race, and Hungarians institutionalized this themselves during the reign of Bela, under whose employ Anonymous worked. I'm not making an ironclad claim here, I'm just suggesting a way to think about cultural continuity that I feel like squares the obvious reality that Hungarians aren't literally descended from Huns, but that the legacy of the Huns tremendously influenced the image both Hungarians and other peoples had of them. And as we'll explain in this series, the affinity for the Huns, it never went away in Hungary. I know I'm focusing a lot on telling the general history of Hungary right now. The focus of my first few episodes is really going to be establishing a history of the Hungarians, too, and how the very first Hungarians thought of themselves based on what little information they had. But my focus with this series at large is to portray the entire and vastly divergent landscape of theories about Hungarian origins that are either erroneous or sometimes conspiratorial. And I think the Hungarian continuity to Attila the Huns really blurs the line between fact and fiction, but we'll discover this complicated historiography and the quote-unquote cult of Attila really goes off the deep end, and over the course of the 800 years between Anonymous's Gesta Hungarorum and now. First Chronicles, Magog is featured again, as that Genesis verse about him being Noah's grandson is repeated word for word. But Gog appears in a genealogy of Jacob's sons, who would have lived hundreds of years later according to the biblical chronology. The sons of Joel were Shemaiah, his son, Gog, his son, and Shimei, his son. But the real epic shit that we care about Gog and Magog about, however, comes from Ezekiel and Revelations. In Ezekiel, the words Gog and Magog have a few features. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophecy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. And a little later, you will come up from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days. The Bible is describing a vision of the end of time, saying God will bring Gog to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed for his war against God's people. In retribution for the apocalyptic attacks against Israel committed by Gog of Magog, which in this book is apparently a country and not a guy, God says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So already the weirdness and inconsistencies around the characters, places of Gog and Magog have understandably led many to speculate on the metaphorical nature or anything that might have been lost in translation or secretly coded with meaning. 
But the most metal mention of the characters biblically is definitely in their final reference in the book of Revelations as Satan's rebellion against God and his people is being predicted. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand and sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down on them from God out of heaven and devoured them. So maybe Gog and Magog are two normal, chill guys separated by hundreds of years. Maybe Gog is a king from a place called Magog, which will wage war against Israel during the end of the world. Or maybe Gog and Magog were two separate figures who will wage this war. I don't know. It's possible that the discrepancy between Ezekiel and Revelations is because of a slip-up in the translation between Hebrew and Greek when writing the Septuagint, but regardless, the figure of Gog and or Magog has remained a powerful metaphor for mysterious civilizations thought to be especially savage. Early Christian writers characterized the Romans as Gog and Magog, but upon Rome's adoption of Christianity, the Goths and so-called barbarians on Rome's frontier were likened to Gog and Magog. It wasn't long until equestrian Eurasian steppe people, and yes, the Scythians, were considered related to Gog and Magog. You can find pretty much every nomadic group referred to by outsiders as Gog or Magog. The Mongols were seen as Gog and Magog too, and they were even occasionally referred to as Magogli. Adding further to the colorful tapestry of Eurasia is the Khazars, who were often considered related to Gog and Magog. Those Khazars, by the way, were dominant in the 9th and 10th centuries and were a fairly powerful steppe culture that the Hungarians most likely were an early vassal of. So the relationship Anonymous attributes to prehistoric Hungarians as having with the Scythians can also probably be said more accurate about the Khazars. The history of the Khazars is a complex topic, and the prominence of Khazars and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories today make the subject genuinely difficult to research or get a clear picture of. French President Jacques Chirac was perplexed by a claim that his American counterpart, George W. Bush, made to him, saying that when he looked at the Middle East, he saw Gog and Magog at work biblical prophecies of Armageddon unfolding. By the 21st century, France was a far more secular place than George Bush's Texas, and Chirac had absolutely no idea why his American counterpart was reciting prophecy to him, so he had to call this historian to explain it to him. But all of this said, the Hungarians were absolutely seen as related to Gog and Magog as they arrived to Europe in the late 9th century. The Hungarians at that time were pagan and still nomadic, and they didn't immediately settle in the Pannonian Basin. They, like the many nomads before them, used it more or less as a base to wage raids throughout Europe, reaching as far as Spain and the Netherlands before being defeated by Otto the Great at the Battle of Lechfield. They would then Christianize in an epic clash of paganism and Christianity that has inspired Hungarian novels and even rock operas and become more or less a typical European kingdom, but with some unique cultural aspects and a language entirely. 
As those very early Magyars were raiding across Europe, there were serious conversations about whether they were the apocalyptic people of Gog and Magog, and if they harbored the end of times. The Gesta Hungarum, which should be understood as a type of state propaganda, flips the idea of Gog and Magog being monstrously evil on its head. You would think that the Harbingers of Doom, who had to be walled off by Alexander behind a mountain pass, who are rumored to eat flesh and associated with European Christendom's most feared enemies, is a lineage that you would want to deny. Anonymous, however, uses this to uplift Hungarian greatness as the originators of a great line that led to the noble King Attila, Prince Almos, and the very royal family employing him to write this. I find this fascinating, and you can see the image of Gog and Magog and the pride to be had in their descent embraced across Hungarian culture. In future episodes, I'll do a deep dive into the ancient alien and Atlantis-related myths or conspiracy theories in Hungary, which pull from the symbolism of Gog and Magog, interpreting them as primordial, extra-dimensional, or alien forefathers. But one of Hungary's most esteemed poets, who wrote during a time when the Hungarian intelligentsia was beginning to re-embrace the East and their origins as feared but misunderstood nomads, wrote what I think is a pretty interesting poem. Endre Adi, influenced by the likes of Baudelaire, is considered one of the greatest Hungarian poets of the 20th century, who analyzed the tension between Western and Eastern identity of the Hungarians through the techniques of symbolism and a strong belief in social progress. He wrote the poem, I Am the Son of King Gog of Magog, and its English translation goes, I am the son of King Gog of Magog. I'm banging doors and walls to no avail. Yet I must ask this question as a prologue. May I weep in the grim Carpathian Vale? I came along Veretske's famous path. Old Magyar tunes still tear into my chest. Will it arouse your lordship's righteous wrath as I burst in with new songs from the West? Or in my ears your molten liquid lead? Let me become the new vazul of songs. Let me not hear the new songs you have bred. Come, thread me down in furious evil throngs. To the end, tortured, expecting nothing, the song keeps soaring on its newfound wings. Even if cursed by a hundred founding fathers, triumphant, new, Magyar, and true it rings. I like that poem for a number of reasons. One is how it explores the complex mythological lineage of Hungary through the legend of Gog and Magog. But another is that reference to molten lead being poured down the ears of a guy named Vazul, which is another great piece of early Hungarian history, and this predates the Gesta Hungarum by about 200 years. Writing this episode, I learned I had a lot more to say about the Gesta Hungarum than I thought, so I'm going to end this episode with an anecdote from the era of Hungary's conversion to Christianity as the state religion, 200 years or 230 years before Anonymous wrote his Gesta. So King Istvan may be the most important figure in Hungarian history. He was the king who made Christianity the state religion and is today considered a saint with a big holiday in Hungary. But the modern image of Istvan as a benevolent civilizer obscures just how brutal the times were. 
and how much effort it took to crush the pagan uprisings that sprang up as he outlawed many old traditions and built churches across the country. So Vazul was the cousin of Istvan, and when both of Istvan's sons died, Vazul had the best claim to the throne. But some historians suggest Vazul may have still been pagan, or at least he and his wife were pagan at the time of their marriage, making their children illegitimate. Vazul's wife, her name is recorded as Tatun, which may have been a misspelling of the Turkic word Tatun, meaning first wife of the Kagan or the tribal leader. I know a big focal point of the Turinist linguistic debate is that Hungarian is not a Turkic language, but Hungarian culture, especially at this time, still had a strong linguistic and cultural Turkic influence. Istvan's birth name was actually Vike, which is likely Turkic-derived and means hero or master or prince. Historians Jorg Jorfi and Jozef Gerich suggest that Vazul and Tatun may have still had a lot of those pagan sympathies and that Tatun herself was possibly in some pagan riots. What's more, after a period of civil wars, it would be Vazul's children who came out on top, with Bela I being Vazul's son and forefather of all the Hungarian kings after the year 1046. But because Vazul was this possibly pagan cousin, perhaps sentenced to a gruesome death by the foundational king and saint of Hungary, many chroniclers actually recorded that his children were his brother's kids instead. And only fairly recently has this historical fact been corrected and established as the true genealogy of Hungarian kings. So from the very beginnings of the Christian kingdom of Hungary, there's this really interesting tension of the old pagan ways pushing back, getting repressed with sometimes pretty galling tactics, and secretly weaving its way back into the country. This has been episode two of season one of the Turin Explorer podcast. In our next episode, we're going to return to the Gesta Hungarum of Anonymous and dive a little deeper into the legendary founding ritual of the Hungarian nation and what modern scholars have to say about it. I want to thank you for exploring this topic with me. In tracking the history of Hungarian theories of origin, there's just so much to dissect within this one document. I've been skipping around a lot. I know there's a lot that I'm missing, but there's a lot of history to tackle. As always, you can follow me on TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at Turin underscore Explorer. And if you've got any suggestions or ideas for other topics, you can email TurinExplorer at gmail.com. That one's with no underscore. If you want to support the podcast and future Turin Explorer projects, you can support us on Patreon. And finally, this podcast has been produced by the incredible Boss Moss. You can follow him on SoundCloud. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time in Turin.